0: I just finished having the pleasure to interview Dr. Christopher Shannon about his book, co-authored with Christopher Bloom, The Pastest Pilgrimage, Narrative, Tradition, and the Renewal of Catholic History. Now, this was, to me, a very interesting book, and this is kind of, a, in a sense, an experiment for our channel. Uh, usually, I am looking at books uh, that are written about Christians, right? Christian studies, it's focusing on Christianity or how Christians have been interacting with non-Christians, something about people studying Christians. This book's a little bit different because it's not so much written about Christianity as within Christianity, particularly the Catholic tradition of Christianity. And in this book, uh, Dr. Shannon and Dr. Bloom explore what it in a sense means to be a Catholic historian and how being a Catholic historian might be different uh, from being another kind of historian. And um, I thought this was was an interesting book, and I'm hoping that for those of you who um, are not uh, Catholics... Uh, that you'll still will get something out of it. I think there's a lot to be gotten out of it because it does raise a different kind of understanding of what history is. And I'm hoping that people will enjoy this and I'll be able to do more such interviews within a tradition as as opposed to just be about a tradition. So uh, without further ado, uh, please enjoy the interview with Dr. Shannon. Unfortunately, Dr. Um, Bloom was not able to join us. So with that, uh, please enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Roush of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Christopher Shannon about his new book, The Past is Pilgrimage, which he co-authored with Dr. Christopher Bloom, who unfortunately is not able to be with us today. Uh, This is really a fascinating book, and I want to welcome Dr. Shannon, or I'm sorry, Chris, to the show. Well, uh, thank you, Frank. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us and taking all this time, especially when you're you're so busy. So I wonder if we could begin the interview by you telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay. um, Well, I'm. uh, I guess I consider myself an upstate New Yorker. uh, First, not quite by birth. I was born in uh, Newburgh, New York, but uh, pretty much grew up in Rochester, New York, uh, and tended to from my you know childhood and years, uh, attended Catholic schools, and, and went away to college for a little bit at uh, Notre Dame, Brief but my undergraduate education uh, was mostly at the University of Rochester, which is where I grew up, and there I was very fortunate to have uh, learned from the person I considered to be the greatest American historian of the 20th century, Christopher Lash, uh, the kind of profound influence on, uh, on me, and inspired me to go to grad school. I uh, attended Yale University in their American Studies program there, uh, which, again, was a very uh, kind of eye-opening and enriching experience, and uh, then uh, worked uh, at various uh, universities over the next uh, few years uh, after graduation uh, until I finally arrived at Christendom College in uh, 2004, and I've been there uh, ever since. Uh, my my uh, my field, uh, I guess then uh, as now, was primarily uh, American intellectual history. So this book is in some ways a bit of a departure, though uh, also a bit of a kind of a reflection of that. But my work uh, in graduate school and since then has been largely in, in American intellectual history, particularly uh, looking at the rise of the culture concept in uh, American social thought, the anthropological idea of culture. And here's one kind of connection to the book Is what I found in, in looking at that uh, as a development of the idea is that uh, secular intellectuals were in the 20th century turning to culture for very much as a kind of a substitute for religion, uh, uh, substitute for kind of religious notions of tradition. Uh, Something that could provide unity that, that modernity didn't seem to be able uh, do, to do. And then in these books uh, the first book, Conspicuous Criticism, and the second book, Who Made for Differences, I kind of show how this modern secular attempt to provide a kind of alternative, uh, to religion really kind of failed in its own terms, and that's intellectually, um, you in know, modernity has not, in a sense, been able to hold it t- together. And, uh, that's been kind of my main, uh, my main, uh, scholarly work before uh, this book here.
0: Oh, excellent! Excellent. Is there any particular reason you were drawn to that question?
1: Um, well, I guess uh, partly from—I I guess we could say maybe my own uh, my own faith uh, as a Catholic trying to make sense of uh, modernity, and uh, reading, been largely under the, the mentorship of Christopher Lash, reading a lot of secular intellectuals that really saw uh, uh, the kind of the consequences of the assets of modernity and saw how all the things that had once held people together seemed to be uh, pulling them apart. And, uh, you know, I experienced that some way in my own uh, kind of growing up. Uh, And while I was really drawn to these thinkers' analysis of this problem, it seemed like they were always coming up short in some way and I was trying to figure out why that was uh, and the key piece to the puzzle um, for me at least was uh, coming across the work of the philosopher Alistair McIntyre, who uh, probably best known for his book After Virtue uh, kind of a study of the uh, the decline in moral philosophy, and he, again, was uh, seeing many similar things and drawing on a lot of secular uh, thinkers, but in his analysis of the secular thinkers, he uh, really uh, kind of showed how their, their own assumptions, uh, particularly about uh, autonomy and independence, made this unity that they were searching for and coherence kind of impossible. And when I read him, first as an undergraduate, I was surprised that, you know, he's making this criticism that in some ways a lot of secular thinkers uh, had made, but he was drawing on Figures like Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, and it's like, oh, Jesus, this sounds kind of Catholic. What's he doing here? And, on <laughs> this. and uh, then as I read more in his work, and actually his own work became more Catholic, I thought, wow, uh, my Catholicism isn't just my, my personal belief or something, but it could actually help to inform my work. And that's, you know, that was the real, you know, after Christopher Lash, it was uh, reading Alistair McIntyre that was the real eye-opener And so uh I drew on McIntyre to kind of get a clear understanding of this uh this idea of culture and, you know, saw some of the things again that he had seen in looking at moral philosophy. But that was the the first point at which I uh realized again that uh my 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 faith could actually inform my work in a way that, you know, wasn't uh distorting the past or just kind of, you know, imposing my, my beliefs on material, but really uh the the intellectual traditions of my faith could give me actually a better understanding of modernity, secular modernity, than, than secular intellectual traditions on the
0: own. Right, and that's one thing that made to me this book so uh, interesting. Usually in this New Books Network, we're looking at books, uh, New Books in Christian Studies, we're looking at books um, about Christians, and it's not always yeah. clear what religious perspective the author is taking, in, in a sense, in secular academia, we're not really supposed to uh, maybe reveal that. But what made this book so interesting to me, and one reason I, I'm glad you were able to make time to interview with us, is the book you're working on, or The is Pilgrimage, is a book about being a, a Catholic Christian um, yeah. historian. So I wonder then if you could, could tell us how what you were just talking about, this kind of um, personal journey of reading McIntyre, how that connects to um, the past is pilgrimage. Yeah. Well, there's, I guess,
1: there's, there's one more intermediary oh, step. Oh, well, sure. When, uh, yeah, I mean, b- before that, because I, I, mean, I had, um, you know, through my undergraduate and graduate years, had made these connections with uh, with McIntyre, and in my my first book, uh, I kind of, like put my cards on the table. Uh, but you know, I'm dumb, but I'm not stupid. I, I didn't. That wasn't my first thought. Like, I'm going to you know, go tell everyone I'm a Catholic. But actually, in the, a very kind of bif- difficult editorial process with Johns Hopkins, they couldn't understand what I was getting at when I was just doing the analysis. So they said, tell us where you're coming from. Mm. And and so, well, okay. <laughs> I've got nothing to lose now. And so I did. And actually, my secular editors there said, hmm, that's really interesting. I may not agree with it, but yes, that makes sense. You know, we'll publish you. Oh, excellent. And and so it's like, okay, well, I overcame one hurdle. And then uh, a couple of years after uh, I had uh, published my first book, I was working at the University of Notre Dame. And this was about the time when
0: Together to, to write this text then.
1: Another historian who has read Alistair McIntyre is actually trying to do history, you know, uh, in in a McIntyrean way. So I think we were both looking for that, and uh, um, when we finally found each other, and so I started working with him there. And we uh, would talk about these things, but really, in in terms of how this book came to be the kind of book uh, that it is, um, it really came out of our discussions.
0: offer a corrective to in the book excellent excellent well that yeah i'm definitely sympathetic with a lot of the points you raised and i'm hoping that some of our listeners who um are dealing with those same issues will go ahead and pick the book up Uh, yeah so i wonder then if you could so that that kind of explains the genesis of the book and what you're trying to do could you walk us through the the introduction of the past as pilgrimage okay sure
1: um well, the, uh, the introduction uh, is, is titled Stories to Uphold the Good, and what Chris and I were trying to do at the beginning is first you know, introduce the concept of history as story, um, which is you know, not totally unfamiliar to people, but to, to, I guess, be a little more specific in how we, we approach story. I mean, it's, it's a common complaint uh, today that, well, history has become too analytic and we've lost the ability to tell a good story, but this is a more about this about more than just telling a good story. Um, it's about the role of kind of narrative in really um, shaping a community and shaping the historical memory and knowledge of a, of a community. Uh, that's not something that academic history does very well. so in the introduction, to just kind of shake things up a bit, you know, to make it clear to people that we're not just calling for academic historians to write better narratives, uh, we look at, we, we try to, uh, well, you know, first say, look, academic history is a very recent way of, of writing history and a very, you know, particular way of understanding the past, uh, and one that's not particularly tied to, to Christianity anyway, so let's go back and look at some other ways of telling stories about the past some other types of writing and some other contexts for, uh, telling the story of the past. And so we give, uh, two, uh, two kind of case studies or examples, uh, of quote unquote history that of course, you know, no academic would accept as history today, but, uh, what we present is not certainly not academic history, but it very much is a story about the past. And uh, Chris's example, the drawing from his, uh, his work uh, in uh, French history is he uh, looks at sermons, particularly 17th century sermons that were given in praise of Louis the Ninth, the great 13th century uh, French king and Catholic saint. And so he, he talks about the way in which these sermons, these you know, sermons on the on the life of the of great French saint, were ways of connecting people to their past, the you know, French people to their past, uh, and that is uh, they they are in that sense historical, certain, you know, historical in a way that not you know tied solely to facts, but again to, to memory and to connecting past to present uh, in a living way, and. And my example, actually, kind of going back uh, even further into the uh, the tradition, I look at uh, uh, the early the accounts of the early Christian martyrs, uh, particularly uh, saints the kind of saints Perpetual Felicity uh, that we actually teach here in the in our Core uh, class, and look at that as uh, uh, kind of a, a text that again connects. Uh, past and present, uh, but also, uh, gives an account of, uh, community building how uh, the, the church is to be understood really as the body of Christ because uh, this uh, passion account which of course you know presents perpetual infelicity felicity as uh, as heroes as you know Christ like in their uh, uh, ability and willingness to suffer along with Christ uh, that's all there that's what we would expect from the account of martyr. but there's also a very powerful account of uh, perpetuating Felicity's Clus- place in the Christian community and how part of their agony uh, really their, their great agony their greatest agony uh, is not the physical pain that they're going to endure but the separation from their community and yeah, this was a uh, really at least, certainly for North African Christians in the late uh, antique period, this was the most powerful story about the past that they could imagine. Uh, you know, Saint Augustine wrote many sermons on it, and sometimes he would, you know, he'd have to con- uh, you restrain the people from just kind of you know breaking out into fits of uh, emotional ecstasy and hearing the story.
0: Tell us um, regarding both these, or these three people rather, um, St. Louis um, and Perpetua and Felicity, what was it you were trying to capture? I mean, you mentioned the community and their role in it, but what is it about them that makes them particularly important uh, areas for historical inquiry? Yeah.
1: Well, for, um, uh, for St. Louis, uh, it is what uh, was going on in the kind of memorialization of St. Louis was. You know, here's here's what it means to be um, a Catholic Christian king, and this this kind of you know, a model of living in the world uh, that was important to to everybody uh, uh, in France. I mean, certainly, very few people are going to be kings, but a king is an essential uh, part of uh, society, of course, and uh, people needed to know that. Uh, Holy kingship was possible, especially in the 17th century, when Chris does a nice job in kind of placing this in the context of a very different kind of king, a rather unsaintly king, uh, of Louis uh, the 16th, uh, excuse me, Louis the 14th, uh, and that Louis the ninth, holiness and sanctity uh, as a king, not as a, as a monk or just somebody cut out from the world, but as a king living in the world you know, fulfilling his worldly functions, that that was a, a kind of a rebuke uh, to the failings, the moral and spiritual failings of Louis Fourteenth, and, uh, you know, that's, you know, kind of a, a great example of how how the past uh, has been used in the in Christian tradition. You know, we, we look back to the saints to uh, present a, a model to us, kind of a standard uh, by which to judge ourselves. Of course, you know, Christ is the standard and all saints. You know, their sanctity is measured by Christ, is modeled on Christ, but there are many different ways to be Christ. And um, that's, you know, Louis shows that you actually can be Christ uh, in, uh, and be a king, even though Louis Fourteenth would seem to suggest that otherwise. Um, now, with Perpetual Felicity, I mean, here we took about Loosen my approach to them. Um, talk about that. These, the, the lives of the saints can have different meanings at different times. For the uh, for the original hearers, for say like for Augustine's congregation, when they would hear this, you know, they're, they're within living memory most of them of these persecutions. Even though Petra and Postius' persecution, you know, was in the early third century, but. Um, there may have been people who, you know, lived through the Diocletian persecutions, uh, certainly people that lived through uh, the persecutions of the Aryan period, so uh, what's, you know, kind of really special about Perpetual Implicity is, you know, their experience of martyrdom, their, uh, their willingness to kind of undergo that suffering that was very real to uh, a lot of people uh, at that time, you know, was within memory and such. Uh, but well, the way I presented in uh, the introductions, I kind raised the issues like, well, most of us in the West at least are, are pretty far from that uh, uh from that experience. Most of us have not had to uh, endure martyrdom or the threat of it. And so I can you know ask well so what what meaning could this story have for us today? And um, if, say, for example, Louis the Ninth is a kind of a corrective to the uh, um, the failings of Louis the Fourteenth. In this, uh, the way I interpret this uh, this narrative is that uh, it shows how uh, the you know commitment to Christ, putting Christ first, uh, can often be not simply giving your life for Christ, but often uh, turning your back on your own family. Uh, you know, I think. I mean, to think of early Christian martyrs, most people think, like, Oh, well, they refuse to offer sacrifice to the gods. Great for them. That's fine. And most of us can imagine, you know, refusing to offer sacrifice to the pagan gods. But so much of their story focuses on the family consequences of that. It's it's not so much perpetual felicity against the emperor or some, you know, impersonal Roman official. It's them against their own family, their pagan family, and there's a very powerful uh, uh, passages where Perpetua's father is pleading with her: "Please, please, don't humiliate me. You know, think of, think of your child. You know, think, of, think of your family. Now, think of your child. Both of them had children, and to undergo this martyrdom, they had to uh, give up their children. In a sense, uh, you know, violate mother love, or put some kind of love." The, before the, the love of the mother for her child. And uh, in a time uh, when I think sometimes the family, you know, certainly among, among faithful Christians, that uh, family has almost become the equal of God in some ways. You know, let's talk about family guys. I think it's a, it's a kind of a nice corrective uh, to that to remind us that, uh, yes, family is good, but there is a higher good, and that uh, our, our love for Christ, and often uh, force us to uh, kind of leave our family behind in the name of a higher
0: love. Right. This is something I often deal with. My research is on um, Korean martyrs in the, the late oh, yeah. 1700s and into the 1800s, and, yeah, yeah family was a, a huge, huge issue.
1: Yeah, 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 and that we, you know, again, I think we kind of, especially if, you, you know, if you're just dealing with the more recent West or something, uh, forget how much, like, conflict was between family and church. Right. And really, in some ways, like the way I teach the, the surveys, I stress that you know, you know, really we may be called a conflict between church and state, but the conflict is between dynastic families, you know, who have their land and want to preserve their name and all that against a church that thinks that it has more authority than they do. And, uh, uh, yeah, and I think I would imagine certainly when, uh, if you're looking at uh, non-Western countries where Christianity is first coming in, that's, I think, the thing that probably strikes them as strange. What? You mean there's something more than the family? Or that that this this belief, whatever this this thing is that you're telling me, you're saying that that might come between me and my family? Uh, Where even the the, the pagan Romans, of course, always uh, uh, whatever gods they worshipped or something, it was all... uh, uh, the, the, idea, the idea that you know, worshiping a god could somehow um, come between you and your family was for a pagan, you know, inconceivable. Which is why in the account, you know, Perpetua's father is just pulling his hair out like, you this isn't a this, this isn't a choice you have to make, you know. And stuff. So yeah, imagine that would be very powerful in, uh, in Korean Catholic history.
0: <laughs> and I think it's, uh, this this introduction. I maybe should have mentioned this when I introduced it. Is really um, is ex- has an excellent title. It's a stories to uphold the good, yeah. Um, and it sounds to me like that that really fits in with the content.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and but again, you know, Louis really the Ninth and Perpetual Force are two kind of big living examples of the good. Um, and so yeah, sorry, I forgot that that, that key uh, key component to it. It's not just. Story. It's not just a certain kind of story about certain kind of people, but it is stories uh, really directed to the good. These are supposed to be, you know, edifying. Uh, They're supposed to give people models on how to live. And you know, certainly uh, those of us who have gone through, you know, the academic uh, mill here uh, are right to be a little aware that we don't, uh, you know, we're. invoking these examples we're not calling for a kind of a, a simple-minded hagiography. Uh, but still, uh, in the end, uh, the stories we tell about the past should in some way uphold uphold the good that that should be the kind of uh, the purpose of it even if along the way you know you, you confront uh, and analyze and uh, uh, engage all of the kind of the evil that is certainly uh, present
0: in the past. Right. So I wonder then. So we've established um, then this, you know, one of the most important things about history is to, to uphold the good in a sense through these stories. I wonder then if we could move to chapter one, uh, which is entitled "Catholicism and that that noble dream." And that noble dream is in, in quotation marks for our listeners. Yeah, and this is in, in many ways uh, the, the first
1: uh, uh, our first attempt to answer the objections that people especially a story, you know, professional historians might reasonably have to the introduction of stories of all the good. You just want, you know, hagiography or um, just uh, some kind of fluff or something that, you know, passes over the uh, all, all, all the evil uh, in history. Uh, you're turning your back on uh, the tremendous advances made in the, the empirical study of the past uh, and, you know, our... Uh, answer to that charge is no, we're not. Uh, but in order to make that charge successfully, we have to kind of establish our relation to that, you know, professional academic history that has been the authoritative history for the last 150 years or so. And so uh, that's what we do in the first chapter. And the, the, that noble dream that is in the quotation marks is a reference to two things. First, uh, Peter Novick's uh, very influential book, That Noble Dream, I think the subtitle is The Objectivity in Question in the American uh, Historical Profession. It's a very, in a very uh, influential book that uh, came out of the 90s, a lot of uh, late 80s, early 90s, a lot of discussion on objectivity. And uh, that noble dream is the noble dream of objectivity objectivity that, that historians could approach the past in something in the way that a physicist approaches the natural world. Uh, the second reference to that that is um, uh, Novick's own reference point was that that's the title of a, of an address uh, given by Charles Beard, the great American historian Charles Beard to the American Historical Association where he was dealing with this issue and one of the great things about Novick's book is that you know written in the Eighties and nineties, in the time of kind of postmodernism and stuff, is that uh, he shows that a, a lot of the um, uh, con- concerns and issues about objectivity that go under the name postmodernism—they were present really at the beginning of the historical profession. Uh, so. In this chapter, I want to, in some ways, go over some of that uh, uh, Novig material, but from the perspective of Catholicism, which just you know, trying to place Catholicism uh, in this uh, this whole historical development of objectivity in the profession. And uh, to do that, I do uh, a couple of things. First, uh, this is in some ways following you Novick know, show that... Uh, you know, professional history, academic history, was never objective in that, uh, in that strong sense, in the kind of, we are like physics sense. Uh, now most historians can uh, accept that and, you know, in all the more recent debates, everyone says, well of course, of course we're not physics, but what, um, what historians are a little less willing to accept and acknowledge is that professional academic history is not simply not like physics, But uh, completely apart from the issue of objectivity, what it does is tell a story, that it is structured by a narrative. And the the issue is not so much objectivity or, or not, but narrative or not. And for all of its approximations of scientific objectivity, it has never been able to escape narrative. And what's very clear from reading any. 19th century history and early 20th century history is that the narrative for most of these uh, professional historians is the rise of a nation state Uh, that's the story that's the big story Uh, and and that's in some ways the story that Chris and I are trying to uh, offer an alternative to Uh, but how do you shoehorn Catholicism into this um, into this the development of history. Uh, is is there really any kind of conversation going on? And, you know, looking a little more closely in ways that Novick didn't, I see that the story of, you know, this kind of master story, if you will, of the 19th century history, the rise of the nation state, actually was directly targeted at none other than the Catholic Church. So, right. uh, you know, the father of modern history, Leopold von Ranke, uh, everybody, you know, kind of. objectivity and such. all the
0: yeah that that makes a lot of sense um, to me right to call it and say well you know the, this is why i tell my students i say you know it's impossible for me to be completely objective yeah and so i say you know this is when i do things that i feel that i'm particularly unobjective about i tell yeah. them Yeah, <laughs> and i say you know just just so you understand this um so so right so there is this um in this supposedly objective history there are there is, in a sense, uh, still a story, and that story is being told along with its own values. So can you tell us a little more, how did Catholics connect to this, especially with this idea of faithless histories? Okay. Uh, Well,
1: uh, you know, Catholics weren't uh, snoozing during the 19th century, uh, and, uh, you know, realized... Uh, this powerful intellectual development that was taking place, and that they had to have some kind of uh, you know, rational response to it. They couldn't simply say, oh, you know, this, this new discipline is, uh, is anti-Catholic, and so we're not going to bother with it. You know, We don't have to deal with it. And um, the, the Church happened to uh, hold a kind of a trump card in this debate, uh, in that uh, the Church, particularly the Pope, uh, had something called the Vatican Archives, tremendous resource to uh, many uh, historians. That is, if you're telling the story of the rise of the nation-state from underneath (laughs) the Church... much more kind of from within the church Uh, and he finds his in some ways his kind of uh
0: Like you were trying to, to do this, and you are like you said, trying to do it from the traditions of the church. What happens in the United States?
1: Yeah, um, that's uh, a little bit of the same and, and, and a little bit of the different. Uh, a little bit different. Um, certainly, uh, Catholic scholars in the United States uh, are observing these developments in uh, in Europe, and in, in some ways, kind of trying to follow the lead of uh, of. Leo and uh, and other Catholic scholars in Europe in making the most of these new uh, scholarly techniques. Uh, But the American situation is a little different. Uh, In Europe, uh, late 19th century Europe, uh, the the Church is engaged in a real war with uh, many of uh, the nation states at the time, particularly uh, France, Third Republic of France, again notoriously anti-Catholic. And so if if you're you're a Catholic and caught in that war, you you have to take a side. Uh, Are you you for the church or are you for the nation state? And someone like a pastor was going to clearly take the side of the church. Uh, In America, it's a little different. There certainly is lots of anti-Catholicism in the United States, uh, but the stakes aren't quite so high as they are in Europe because of our disestablishment and such. Uh, And so... Catholic scholars here uh, kind of think they can have the best of both worlds. When um, they they do their history, they're, they're very very uh, you know respectful of the church, respectful of church traditions. There's nothing, certainly nothing anti clerical in any of the history that gets written. Uh, and you yeah. know the, the Pope is generally presented in uh, in, a, in a positive light. But when American historians are dealing with American materials. Uh, American Catholic history there is a, a kind of nationalistic dimension to it that you know kind of gets lost or might be easy to overlook given that the stakes of nationalism for Catholics aren't quite so high in America as in Europe uh, rather than you know nationalism in the sense of telling the story of the, you know, the US Constitution as, as a triumph over the church or something like that where you know, if you're in Europe You'd have to tell some equivalent of that type of story. What they do is take you know, part of the U.S. Constitution, particularly the, the First Amendment, uh, and the principle of disestablishment or you know, religious freedom, and say, you know, here's the great American principle, and you know what? Catholics were central in, uh, in developing this principle and central in defending and promoting it because for the for a lot of the 19th century, the Catholics were the main targets of those who would like to see a little less religious freedom in America. So uh, Catholic historians, though, you know, faithful to the Pope, faithful to the Church and all that, also wanted to be faithful to America and really almost at times argue that Catholics are the real Americans because we believe in religious freedom more than anyone else and religious freedom is what uh, America is all about. Um. And, you know, that's, in the late 19th century, that maybe wasn't too problematic, but that did, you know, sow the seeds for some, some problems later, where uh, you could say nationalism or being American and being Catholic would uh, come into a uh, kind of more direct um, confrontation with each other.
0: Right, right. right. So excellent. So, chapter one, it feels like you've kind of, um, you and Dr. Bloom have managed to, you've kind of identified an issue, a problem that Catholics have to deal with. And in Chapter Two, the Historians' Craft and the Catholic Tradition, it seems like, um, at least as I understood, this is where you're kind of giving your solution.
1: Yeah, the um, chapter, chapter One is a little more, you know, critical, negative, it's like, kind of, here's, here's the problem. Uh, and, uh, you know, academic history is something that we must work through. You know, we can't pretend it never happened, we can learn from it, but if, if we're going to do something more than just, uh, say, you know, a history of Catholics, uh, if we're going to do a Catholic history rather than just a history of Catholics, then we need to look back to the tradition, uh, earlier parts of the tradition before there was uh, you know an academic historical profession uh, because that's when you had uh, kind of a a Catholic history that was uh, clearly uh, and robustly uh, unapologetically Catholic and so here uh, I think most of chapter 2 is is, uh, more the work of uh, Chris Bloom uh, doing working with material that he's more familiar with he holds up uh, kind of two Catholic historians, but neither of whom would be, you know, certainly recognized as historians by today's academic profession. Uh, but he looks back to the 17th century French, uh, writer Jacques Bossuet, uh, Uh, perhaps in this context best known for his discourse on universal history. Uh, and then uh, the writings of, I think I'm uh, better known, uh, Colonel John Henry Nolan, blessed John Henry Nolan, and particularly his work on the Church of the Fathers. And he uses these both as kind of models for, uh, for history writing and, uh, History, storytelling, again, this, this, this theme of narrative and story that uh, returns again and again in the work. Account of the um, uh, the really tragic story of the relation between two saints, uh, Basil of Cesarea and Gregory Nazianzen, and uh, there in his account, which you know is pretty much just his account of Newman's account, uh, you really get a sense of how. you know, Christian history has, you know, rich material for tragedy. And, you know, telling a story, telling a dramatic story that upholds the good is not simply, you know, whitewashing the past or anything. There's, a, there's a two saints that were, uh, you know, at times at each other's throats, eventually do reconcile, but, um, you know, all of the, the highs and lows and, you um, uh, you know, tragic happenings that we associate with with great grand history. You now, these these are all there uh, within uh, Christian history itself, and in the hands of a, of a great writer and thinker like Newman, um, you know, they can be rendered uh, in a way that that tells the story of the faith.
0: Oh, excellent, excellent. So. Um no, that makes a lot of sense. So again, it's just this kind of idea of telling stories from a Catholic perspective. Um, and th- that to me seems like, uh, maybe I misread it but to me, that seems like the first half of the chapter. I wonder, um, if, I, if it's okay, I wanted to read a quote from the chapter. Okay. On uh, page 91, um, there's the quote, When the historian's labor has been specified as the exercise of right judgment upon the data of the past for the sake of the formation of the virtue of right judgment in his audience, the dependence of the historian's craft upon the science of ethics is clear. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you could comment a, a little bit about that to, for our listeners.
1: Yeah, um, that, uh, basically, if you're, you know, judgment, there's different kinds of judgment, certainly one, what the kind of judgment historians are, are used to making is like judging uh, matters of causality, relative causality. Well, you know, how can, how did this event happen? Like, you know, what's the cause of World War One? Well, there's a lot of factors, and, you know, in, in the end, in weighing different factors, you have to come to, come to some kind of judgment. Uh, and all of that's well and good, but what uh, Chris is trying to do here in, in that passage you just read is like... doing, but um, so often...
0: Should be taking into account stories that uphold the good, they're told dramatically and help the the audience to um, to live the good, to make right decisions. And yes. chapter, um, I'm sorry. No, I, I didn't say. Anything. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. And then in chapter three, saints, sinners, and scholars. You pick up with uh, Eamon Duffy, who I guess is a it seems is an exemplar of this approach.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, and and the well. Uh, I'd say, you know, to be fair, what—and this is the chapter that I worked on more—that um, what he's primarily an exemplar of is somebody who has, I would say, successfully synthesized, um, you know, the, the modern. Kind of historical techniques and the tools of the secular profession and uh, an authentically uh, Catholic perspective, you know, kind of coming out of Catholic narrative and really holding that, um, uh, as normative for kind of for judging history. Uh, so, in, um, in, in that sense, yes, he's an exemplar, uh, of that, you know, particularly, um, I think in uh, his, his ability to kind of place, uh, primarily Reformation, starting to put Reformation history in uh, in a big picture context. You could say, like as uh, Bussey would have us do, uh, and then also um, the ability to tell kind of dramatic narratives, really kind of tragic narratives uh, of people caught in. Uh, very, very difficult situations. I think of the end of his great work, the *Tripping of the Altars*, where he uh, tells the story of the of some um, priest who lived through all of the changes uh, in the, the mid sixteenth century England. Um, and you know, it's like, well, for now, now, now we're Protestant, now we're Catholic, now we're Protestant again, things like that. Uh, and told kind of very, very sympathetically. Um, the sensitivity to the moral reasoning and ethical reasoning that this uh, this priest engaged in, in always switching back and forth how uh, he was driven he wasn't driven simply by uh, kind of expediency and wanting to save his neck uh, but ultimately um, driven by his desire to serve his flock and that's the, uh, uh, the for for Duffy the kind of um, the great uh, historical lesson uh, or or significance of 16th century uh, English religious history is, he says, it wasn't so much the triumph of a theology, uh, though eventually English people will kind of come to accept the new theology as their own, but ultimately he sees it as a kind of a triumph
0: So that was my sense as I, I got this chapter. I think that, that came through very well here, was this, this sense of tragedy in that um, I, I, being a writing history from a Catholic perspective isn't simply just, um, like you said, it's not just the story of, well, these were the good guys, these were the bad guys yeah, who apostatized. Yeah. It, there is this sense of human moral frailty and of the difficult choices human beings living in history sometimes have to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I certainly appreciated that. Okay. And um in chapter 4 you're you're moving to someone right that's that's not a professional historian uh Pope yeah. Benedict <laughs> the 16th yeah, he so had he's another job. a job. He had a job. Yeah. <laughs> um I wonder I thought this was really creative to to look at how a pope is um talking about uh hagiography.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and that's um chapter 4 is uh that's that's more of Chris's work but he does you know I think uh, very provocatively, but you know, this is how we structured it, after you know, spending a chapter showing, hey, here's how a you know a, a, a real kind of a credentialized professional historian can do it, uh, then we say, well, and here's how somebody who's not a credentialized historian. Within the church, says that the, the, res, the best best response to this is not to you know kind of lay down the law and doctrine once again, uh, but to tell the story of the church, to retell the story of the church, remind.
0: Was, i really enjoyed this chapter and like i say it, it was a surprise <laughs> yeah, <yep. laughs> so I, I wonder then if you could then uh we've gone through the the introduction the four chapters of the book i wonder if you could bring us then through the conclusion
1: uh, yeah this, uh, the the conclusion is uh, pretty much kind of the way forward uh if you will and a kind of a maybe you know, a restatement of our general principles um uh, and uh, But then offering also uh, uh, some kind of analogous models, if you will, that building a bit on, uh, particularly Chris's chapter on uh, Benedict and his emphasis on the saints, we kind of pr- propose in many ways uh, the saints' life as a way to start as kind of a model or a genre for this new Catholic history. Uh, but you know Saint's life is not going to simply be hagiography. That's uh, going to be uh, something like Benedict's very, very short uh, Saint's life. Although you know Chris acknowledges, like, well, as historians, you know, we, we we need to work in a bit more of a, a longer format, if you will. But it'll be you know take Benedict's. Uh, seeing the face of Christ in history type of model, uh, seeing it through the saints, and beefing that up a bit with a kind of a history that's, you know, a little more, that reflects a little more uh, of, um, you know, kind of modern scholarship and such. And in, in kind of looking around for uh, a model for that, I, let, you know, went back to my old orals list and a new book that I've taught a couple of times in classes and really found life that, uh, uh, you know, relates to its material and something like that. I, I actually hope in a little more sophisticated way than Morgan, because uh, we would like to be writing not just for our times, but for all times, and hope that um, these type of saints' lives could, could stand the test of time and not just be seen as kind of a saint's life for, you know, the early 21st century or something, I mean, to some degree that's unavoidable. Every, every work is a work of its time. Uh, but some works, again, do last beyond their time. And we would, our um, are, are kind of uh, call to arms, if you will, for uh, for Catholic historians is to, is to start thinking about how to write, uh, to write a history, particularly kind of a saint's life that might stand the test of time, that is not going to be simply, you know, thrown in the ash heap after a generation, or maybe consigned to uh, uh, an unorals with, oh, well, you know, this is how they used to write about it, you know, you should uh, uh, you should take a look at that. But, you know, so, you know, so much of the history that is written in academia is, it's written to be revised, you know, and to be discarded, and that's just not a uh, very rewarding intellectual activity in the end you know that you're you know what you're writing is kind of it's designed to be obsolete you know there's planned obsolescence in writing uh, you know again that's, that's kind of uh, dispiriting and disheartening and makes one wonder well why should I do such a thing other than you know professional advancement or something but uh, we you know Looking back to Newman and Busway and, and some of the other, you know, the figures that we've dealt with in the book, we would like to, uh, you know, inspire a new generation of Catholic historians to, um, uh, can to take up our call to do a history that is, um, you know. Fully in tune with uh, uh, contemporary methods and techniques, but also kind of from within the heart uh, of the church. And we think uh, we think that that's uh, very possible, and uh, just you know, hope that there's other people out out there uh, that are willing uh, to kind of take
0: up uh, the task. Well, I found it uh, certainly very inspiring, and I hope that our our listeners will too.
1: Well, uh, thank you, Frank. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that you did it. Mate. Certainly, I hope as well that uh, there's others out there uh, yeah, to this
0: strikes a with. Well, I think there will be. Well, now, we, we've taken up a, a lot of your time, so I'd like to end by asking the traditional New Books Network question. What are you working on now? Okay.
1: Uh, well, as a matter of fact, I am. It's... Uh uh, I'm trying to figure out if it's really responding to the call that uh, Chris and I have just given, but <laughs> I think it is, actually. Uh, it's a it's a, uh, a study of four Catholic thinkers, um, the uh, Romano Guardini, Henri de jean and Jacques Mariton, four kind of early to mid-century Catholic thinkers that uh, were really, in many ways, the kind of in- uh, inspiration and architect for Vatican II, and, uh, and, and offered, uh, I think a, a distinctively Catholic path through modernity. The, the, the name of the, the, kind of the title of the book is The Salvation of the Nations, uh, Catholic Modernity in an Age of Confessional Liberalism. So I think some of those words you can, uh, maybe get the connection to, uh, the past of pilgrimage that, uh, I'm trying to put these thinkers in a broader intellectual context, not just church thinkers, but but modern thinkers. And and understand that context is not so much a secular one, but a confessional one, although a different kind of confession. This you know, uh, liberalism, uh, modern liberalism, that has really uh, a kind of a, a deep spiritual worldview and a set of non-negotiable faith commitments and such, uh, that has largely... Dominated or determined public life in the West, and the way I want to present these thinkers is to show them not only as you know, Catholic thinkers dealing with problems specific to Catholicism in, uh, in that half century leading up to Vatican II, but also see them as thinkers who tried to stake a claim for Catholicism in public life. That's you know, uh, for them, you know, their, their agenda was not simply to reform the church.
0: like a fast named book, and maybe when it's complete and published, we can get you on here again if you'd like. I'd be happy to. Oh, good deal. Well, thank you again for taking so much time to talk with us today. Have a great day. Thank you very much for listening to this interview of the Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network. Uh, have a great day, and hope to hear from you again.